This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Today, the final push to remove trachoma in Indigenous communities. We need to continue the effort to make sure we actually eliminate trachoma from the Australian children. And if we stop halfway, it's like a spring. If it's not actually locked down, it'll just spring right back up again. But first on the show... It's just past 8am on a Saturday and Park Run is in full swing. Park Run is a free 5km run held at venues across Australia and the world and runners compete against each other for the best time. On this particular Saturday, 5 kilometres was just a warm-up for a running festival happening in Sydney the following day, with runners planning on competing in a 9-kilometre half-marathon or marathon race. I was actually gearing up for my second half-marathon on Sunday, but skip today's 5-kilometre park run. I was here for a very different reason. I work for a program called Think Health and I'm just working on a story about recovery in athletes and what, what different people use. Yeah, just something a bit fun. Yeah, why not? Do you run yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. I'm doing the half marathon tomorrow, oh, okay. so, yeah. Okay. Good luck with that. <laughs> but first, a bit of context. If you're serious about training for a half marathon or marathon, you can be running anywhere between 30 and 60 plus kilometres a week. As you can imagine, clocking that many Ks can take a serious toll on your body. So in these running circles, there is understandably a focus on recovery. For the uninitiated, recovery is important as you want to return your body to what it was pre-training. Give it time to rest and repair. So when race day rolls around, you can perform at your best. Recovery is important because your body needs to have some downtime in order to heal. This is Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a massage therapist at Paramount Sports Recovery. There's a lot of muscle breakdown that can occur during really high intense training. You've got to give the body the time to heal that so it can get back out there and do it again. We'll hear more from Anna a little later. Okay, now fast forward to the real reason why I was at Park Run. In prepping for the half marathon, I've tried compression, massage, ice baths, foam rolling, carb loading, but always wondered how much of an impact any of these methods had come race day. So I thought I would check in with some other runners to see what worked for them. And what better way to do so than getting people to jump in an ice bath? So what, what's your name and what time did you do today? I did 25.18 and my name's Belinda. And what sort of recovery methods do you normally use after running? Just mainly stretching, yeah. Um, use a bit of a roller on my calves in particular. Um, rest, yeah, and cold packs as cold well. Cold packs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to this. Are you going to jump in? Yeah. Oh, well. Take my shoes off. <laughs> Are you doing the half marathon or the marathon tomorrow? I'm doing the 9K tomorrow, yeah. No, the only reason I came today is because I knew you were coming with the bath, so I thought uh, that's my excuse to come and run today and then run tomorrow. 
So have you used ice baths before? No, I haven't. Do you want to, do you want to tell me what I need to expect here? Uh, this? Yeah, probably a lot of numbers. <laughs> Rory was another runner who ran 5Ks this morning and was attempting the half marathon the next day. Rory says he has used ice baths in the past, especially when the running season starts to ramp up. What time did you do today? Oh, uh, 2057. <laughs> cold. <laughs> so what sort of recovery methods do you normally use, Rory? Um, well, let me just do a bit of stretching. At the start of the season I do this more because my legs normally hurt more. And do you think ice baths actually work for you? Um, they take the pain away a bit, <laughs> which is good. I got the idea, I don't know much about the science, that, um, yeah, that the cold water stops the blood flowing to the muscles or it stops it flowing around the body and then when you take it out and it gets warmer then it lets new blood flow in more effectively but that's about as far as I know and I might be wrong so. <laughs> Belinda's friend Kelly also jumped in the bath which was by now pretty cold as the ice was well and truly beginning to melt. Oh Kelly. <laughs> Kelly and what time did you do today Kelly? Uh, 26.35. Good, good job. I think that's a PB so I'm happy. Holy crap, it's cold. So have you ever used an ice bath before? No. No. What, what sort of recovery methods do you normally use? Stretch. And that's about it. <laughs> Stretch down. <laughs> have you heard about ice baths before? Yeah. Because yeah. um, my boyfriend's like, plays league and stuff, so he's always talking about ice baths for recovery. And I've never just, never done it, but... but <laughs> Should try it more often. <laughs> Should come down every week. <laughs> so, so it was Belinda, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. How are you feeling now that you've been in for a couple of minutes? Yeah, I'm getting a bit numb. numb. Yeah, my feet have definitely really frozen now and wrinkly, <laughs> as you can see. <laughs> but, but I feel good. Yeah. So everyone had a perception that ice baths were helpful. But what does the research say? I asked Rob Duffield, Associate Professor in Sport and Exercise Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. It allows a flushing effect through the muscle by basically having vasoconstriction to the periphery. So vasoconstriction is shutting down the blood flow to the periphery and then funneling that blood into the muscles. That's the theoretical argument. There's not really the proof for that. Cold water immersion really works best, it seems, when the environmental conditions are hot so it helps as a cooling agent following exercise in the heat. When the muscle damage is maybe higher or the extent of use is higher, so an unaccustomed bout, so if you're used to running 10 kilometres and you do a 12 to 15 kilometre effort, that excessive load from training, you know, cold water immersion has benefits there. So cold water immersion in an Aussie summer, if you're doing a marathon or a half marathon. Absolutely. Pre-cooling, post-cooling, it's a great option. For you to really see the benefits of an ice bath, though, you need to stick it out for a good 15 minutes. Normally, whole body immersion in 10 to 12 degrees for 15 to 20 minutes. So quite substantial cold water immersion. If you go into any professional football team, if you can get five to eight minutes out of the guys, you're doing very well. And if you go into any amateur, if you can get more than two to three minutes in that environment, you're doing exceptionally well. So... What the research tells us about the extent of cold water immersion you need and what people actually do, there's a bit of a difference.
Back at Park Run, I noticed a lot of runners in compression gear. Here's Belinda again. You've got compression leggings on as yes. well. Do you use compression for recovery? Yeah, I would do, yeah. Yeah, I did have a calf injury at some point, um, so I went and got some of these compression tights, um, and I found that it's a lot nicer to run in. Yeah. And do you think it, it actually physical wor- physically works for you, like the cold packs and compression yeah, and that? Actually, yeah, yeah. Full disclosure, I was also in compression tights all day prior to the race in the hope they would do something. But unlike ice baths, there is minimal research to back up compression clothing as an effective form of recovery. Do compression garments have any benefit during exercise? Again, most of the evidence would suggest no from a research from crossover trials and counterbalance trials and placebo trials. Most of it is belief. Um, There are some studies that show repeated jumping for peak power um, and repeated cycling efforts have some improvements in performance with compression garments, but most sprinting, power, jumping, running studies don't show any improvement. There's another type of recovery that I hadn't heard of until I met with Anna. It's a salt bath. 350 kilos of salt dissolved in a tank that apparently helps sore muscles and helps you to relax. In the name of research, I decided to give it a try. Um, In the tank, there's 350 kilos of Epsom salt. Uh, The water depth is only about 25 centimetres. So what you'll find is that with the amount of salt in the solution, it becomes more buoyant than it is in the Dead Sea. So when you're hopping, you will quite literally float very effortlessly on the surface. The whole idea when you're floating is that you don't know where your skin ends, you don't know where the water begins, it's dark, it's quiet, you don't feel the pressure of anything underneath you. So it's an environment where you can really easily lose yourself, which is quite nice. That's the relaxation side of stuff. Epsom salts are a magnesium and a sulfate so it's a muscle relaxant and a protein builder for your joints so you absorb a lot of that whilst you're floating and you get to experience a bit of an anti-gravity effect as well in that you don't feel sort of anything underneath you. You get the sense of being suspended which is nice. So you need to have a quick rinse before you hop in just to get the day off you. So the door behind you, shower's on the right, toilet's on the left. Fantastic. Good. Any questions? No. That's it. Perfect. Enjoy. I'll leave okay. you to sort that side of stuff out. All right. Thanks. I'll see you in an hour. Okay. Shower off. And I'm about to get in the tub. So I did, had a really punishing swim session last night and I've backed it up with a gym session this morning. So let's see if this bath does anything. Kind of feels... I'm in, or say halfway up my calf, it feels, oh, there's a scab on my, on my toe that really hurts from it. Um, but now I guess it's time to turn the mic off and relax. This is a kind of really surreal experience. I still, now that I'm out of the tub, I still feel like I'm in the tub. It's like when you go to the beach... And you spend too long in the waves and then you go to bed that night and you can still feel the waves. It feels feels like I still feel a bit weightless and my body is still like everything. Yeah, it really feels really loose, I guess. I'm not sure it's had any like immediate benefit, but I definitely feel more relaxed. Um, my arms are really sore from an arm workout this morning and yeah, they, I guess they feel really, really loose as well. It was weird once you were in there. 
and you do float and Anna was right you do feel like you can't feel the end of your fingers and your toes it just all becomes one in this bath it's like laying down on a mattress and the mattress being the most supportive mattress ever but also super comfortable and like you can't feel the mattress like you just it's the ultimate floating experience I'm really thirsty from all the salt so the next day after the float I must admit I didn't have that moment of feeling like a new person But now is probably the time to say that all of this recovery stuff comes down to one thing. You may have heard Rob say it earlier. Most of it is belief. Take, for example, another form of recovery, massage. There is no evidence saying massage helps recovery. But Rob says the majority of athletes can't get enough of it. Athletes love massage, but the proof of it, you know, in terms of scientific validity for recovery, it's not that strong. But show me an athlete who doesn't want massage following you know an exercise bout a training bout and well I probably can't find one so you know <laughs> but although from a physiological or scientific perspective you'd argue well massage has no place because of the evidence from a perspective of the athlete being ready to train and what they believe in it's a massive one so recovery is combining that physiological state with the mental preparation to believe they can train or compete again and this is something massage therapist Anna agrees with So massage is one of those tools that's awesome for recovery during training blocks because it works to get a lot of the tension out of the body, works to release a lot of trigger points. And we find that there's that intense perceived benefit by clients because they feel good after having a session. They feel relaxed after having a session. They certainly get up the next day. They can tell that they're looser. If you truly believe compression or floating in a salt bath or an ice bath or massages work, then they probably do. Rob says that at the end of the day, we are human and belief is a pretty big driver of success for athletes. They believe they feel better. They believe that muscle soreness is is lower. They believe that their readiness to train or readiness to compete is higher. And that's where the placebo effect comes in. But before you go stocking up on ice cubes and compression tights, keep in mind that these forms of recovery are what's known as marginal gains. If you think of recovery as a pie chart, Rob reckons around 2% is made up of the methods we have talked about so far. The biggest chunks that will affect your performance are sleep, hydration, nutrition, and reducing your training load when you need to. We tend to talk about recovery in general as being our, our big blocks or our big drivers of recovery. So we're talking reducing the training load, so reducing the amount of work you do in the next session, if it's appropriate, making sure you get appropriate nutritional intake, so carbohydrate and protein immediately after and then in the ensuing couple of hours, and then avoidance of factors that reduce sleep. You know, they're your big three primary drivers to provide good recovery. And props to our parkrun guinea pigs, most of whom were good sleepers and eaters. And what about sleep and nutrition? Do you pay attention to that after you've done a race? Probably not as well as I should, but yeah, I I do sort of have a good good diet, I guess. Um, I do watch what I eat. Um, I have a lot of protein, a lot of smoothies. Um, I don't eat a lot of rubbish. Um, But sleep, I'm a good sleeper. But 8.30 on the lounge every night, yeah. I have a good eight hours every day. <laughs> I think sleep's important. If you don't have a good night's sleep, uh, I find I run pretty hard in the morning, so uh, a good night's sleep's good for your running, yeah. Prior to, prior to you know, the best power pill in the world, you have a banana. And, um, but 
after the race you've, you've trained all week for it and um, you tend to reward yourself and have a nice breakfast. Heaps of carbs afterwards. So whatever recovery you use, whether it's ice baths or a good night's sleep, Anna says it is important that you stick with your recovery methods to avoid injury and to maximise training. It all comes down to looking after yourself. If you are going to commit to doing a sport, whatever sport it be, know that it doesn't matter how much you spend on shoes or how much you spend on your bike, you've got to service yourself too. Because if you're the one who's doing everything and you're not servicing you, you're not looking after yourself, there'll come a point in time where you may have an injury and it's going to cost you more in lost time, lost training, than if you'd have just slotted things into place to give you support to help you get through. As always, if you would like to find out more about that story and see the ice bath in action, visit 2SER.com forward slash Think Health. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Trachoma is the world's leading cause of infectious blindness, but Australia is the only high-income country in the world that hasn't eliminated it. Trachoma, or as it used to be known, sandy blight, is caused by bacteria in the eye, which creates a swelling under the inner eyelid and leads to scarring. Australia has tried to tackle this in the past, so why is it still an issue in some Aussie communities? Nina Copel finds out. It's been 40 years since Fred Hollows brought eyesight for Australia's Indigenous population to the nation's attention. Fred Hollows and a team, including Aboriginal health workers, went out across Australia on what was called the National Trachoma and Eye Health Program. This is Jackie Adams-Barton, manager of the Indigenous Australia Program at the Fred Hollows Foundation. It was the first of its kind to look at eye health across Australia, particularly in remote areas. So that program commenced 40 years ago. So you can imagine back then the landscape was very different to what it is now. The government provided $1.4 million with the aim of eliminating trachoma and improving eye health among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. And so Fred Hollows and the team set out across Australia in four-wheel drives. He was totally flabbergasted at the state of Aboriginal health. So not only is Fred a leading ophthalmologist in Australia, but he is also a leading advocate for health equity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But obviously back from the learnings of Fred and the team in the national program was the need to engage people at a local level, so talk to and listen to Aboriginal people on the ground and give them the tools in order to make the right decisions around health and particularly eye health. The rates of trachoma in Indigenous communities are better than they once were, but in some areas of Australia, 4% of Indigenous kids aged 5 to 9 still have an active trachoma infection. In the Northern Territory, it's at 5%, which is considered endemic. Well, trachoma, uh, we used to call it sandy blight, but it disappeared from mainstream Australia over 100 years ago uh, as our living conditions improved. This is Professor Hugh Taylor, Harold Mitchell Chair of Indigenous Eye Health at the University of Melbourne. He was also part of the team in the 70s, working on the National Trachoma and Eye Health Program with Fred Hollows. It persists in areas where there's poor personal and community hygiene. And it's a blinding infection that gets spread repeatedly 
from one child to another uh, with infected eye secretions so that every child with a dirty face is a health hazard and is likely to infect other people with the trachoma uh, germs. Trachoma really revolves around the need for to keep every child's face clean in these remote communities so that they don't spread the infection. We're also uh, teams, uh, health department teams are going out treating everybody uh, with, uh, who needs treatment with uh, antibiotics to reduce the level of infection. And so that's very specifically targeted at the uh, younger children and their families. And the older people who at the end stage of trachoma, one ends up with the eyelashes rubbing on the eyes, that needs the other healthcare system so that there is referral to ophthalmologists or eye surgeons to have the corrective surgery. But the main thrust is to, is to stop the children of today developing the scarring and uh, eyelash problems uh, that they would otherwise develop in later life. But it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to trachoma. We're actually making good progress. We're making very good progress. The rates of trachoma in the remote areas have dropped from being somewhere between 15 to 20% in children down to now less than 5%. And that's a dramatic change in the last uh, half dozen years. And I think the uh, healthcare systems are working so most of the people who have the interned eyelashes are now being detected and uh, referred and, and receiving the corrective surgery they need. But what we need to do is we need to continue the effort to make sure we actually eliminate trachoma from the Australian children. Uh, and if we stop uh, halfway, it's like a spring. If it's not actually locked down, it'll just spring right back up again. Professor Taylor says the government is on board with fighting the disease but he won't be counting the funding until he sees it. The Australian government committed to eliminate trachoma uh, by the year 2020, and, and so there's good progress on that. But one of the problems with these government programs is that the funding is only for a certain number of years, and the current round of funding ends in 2017, and although everybody says, oh, yes, it'll be, the funding will continue, until you actually see it in the budget, it's still... Uh, a certain degree of uncertainty, but certainly there is a lot of interest and support from both the Commonwealth and the uh, state and territory governments to actually see this job done. But when it comes to people like Professor Hugh Taylor entering communities and teaching them about health and hygiene, there are cultural sensitivities that can be hard to navigate. Oh, very much so. And, and, and we uh, certainly have done a lot of research, but also have used that research to inform the health intervention and health promotion activities that we're doing. And with that, we work very closely with the communities themselves, with the Aboriginal health services, and then with the state and and national bodies, because changing social norms and changing uh, behaviour is a very sensitive issue that has to be handled carefully, so that it's been very important for us to have strong community engagement and input in the way we develop and shape the messages. And one of the ways they're doing this is through Milpa, the trachoma goanna. I've got a friend called Milpa the goanna, and Milpa's got real good advice. When it comes to seeing clearly, here's what Milpa would say. Clean faces, strong eyes. So wash, wash, wash your face and hands every morning. Wash, wash, wash your face and hands every night. Wash, wash, wash any time of the day to keep your eyes healthy and bright. Milpa is part of a campaign to prevent trachoma through the SAFE strategy, which is S for surgery to correct inward eyelashes, A for antibiotics to reduce levels of infection, F to promote face washing, and E for environmental impacts in sanitation. Where we see the most benefit and the most value add in terms of what 
needs to be achieved to eliminate trachoma. It is around the E side of the SAFE strategy. Jackie Adams-Barton again from the Fred Hollows Foundation. So the environmental health side, which is about improving or um, giving people access to the right tools and equipment and running water and hygiene facilities to ensure that environmental health activities are linked to the elimination of trachoma, but more broadly that it's a whole of health, whole of household, whole of family uh, approach to better health for the community. Um, and in order to ensure that the elimination of trachoma and efforts around eliminating trachoma are sustainable, we need to and we must um, look at the E side of the safe strategy and uh, you know, resource and um, listen to communities about what they need to implement environmental health activities that will better the health of the community. Jackie Adams-Barton, Manager of the Indigenous Australia Program at the Fred Hollows Foundation, ending that report by Nina Kopel. And if you would like to find out more about that story, head to 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. We're also available wherever you are. Just search for Think Health in your favourite podcast app. If today's program has raised any issues with you, go and see GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. This has been Think Health. See you next week for more in health research and news. Listener.